This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August of 2006. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Chapter 21 Noting an Increase in Bigamy. Either more men are marrying more wives than ever before, or they are getting more careless about it. During the past week, bigamy has crowded baseball out of the papers, and while this may be due in part to the fact that it was a cold, rainy week and little baseball could be played, yet there is a tendency to be noted there somewhere. All those wishing to note a tendency will continue on into the next paragraph. There is, of course, nothing new in bigamy. Anyone who goes in for it with the idea of originating a new fad which shall be known by his name, like the daguerreotype or Potatoes O'Brien, will have to reckon with the priority claims of several hundred generations of historical characters most of them wearing brown beards. Just why beards and bigamy seem to have gone hand in hand through the ages is a matter for the professional humorists to decide. We certainly haven't got time to do it here. But the multiple marriages unearthed during the past week have a certain homey flavor lacking in some of those which have gone before. For instance, the man in New Jersey who had two wives living right with him all of the time in the same apartment. No need for subterfuge here, no deceiving one about the other. It was just a matter of walking back and forth between the dining room and the study. This is, of course, bigamy under ideal conditions. But in tracing a tendency like this, we must not deal so much with concrete cases as with drifts and curves. A couple of statistics are also necessary, especially if it is an alarming tendency that is being traced. These statistics follow in alphabetical order. In the United States during the years 1918 and 1919, there were 4,956,673 weddings. 2,485,845 of these were church weddings, strongly against the wishes of the bridegrooms concerned. In these weddings, 10,489,392 silver olive forks were received as gifts. Starting with these figures as a basis, we turn to the report of the Pennsylvania State Committee on Outdoor Gymnastics for the year beginning January 4, 1920, and ending a year later. This report, being pretty fairly uninteresting, we leave it and turn to another report, which covers the manufacture and sale of rugs. This has a picture of a rug in it, and a darned good likeness it is, too. In this rug report, we find that it takes a Navajo Indian only 11 days to weave a rug 12 by 15 with a swastika design in the middle. Eleven days! It seems incredible! Why, it only takes 365 days to make a year! Now, having seen that there are 73,000 men and women in this country today who can neither read nor write, 
and that of these only four percent, or a little over half, are colored, what are we to conclude? What is to be the effect on our national morale? Who is to pay this gigantic bill for naval armament? Before answering these questions any further than this, let us quote from an authority on the subject, a man who has given the best years, or at any rate some very good years, of his life to research in this field, and who now takes exactly the stand which we have been outlining in this article. I would not, he says in a speech delivered before the Girls' Friendly Society of Laurel Hill, I would not for one minute detract from the glory of those who have brought this country to its present state of financial prominence among the nations of the world. And yet, as I think back on those dark days, I am impelled to voice the protest of millions of American citizens yet unborn. Perhaps some of our little readers remember what the major premise of this article was. If so, will they please communicate with the writer? Oh, yes, bigamy. Well, it certainly is funny how many cases of bigamy you hear about nowadays. Either more men are marrying more wives than ever before, or they are getting more careless about it. That sounds very, very familiar. It is barely possible that it is the sentence with which this article opens. We say so many things in the course of one article that repetitions are quite likely to creep in. At any rate, the tendency seems to be towards an increase in bigamy. Chapter 22 The Real Wigloff, Man and Monarch Much time has been devoted of late by ardent biographers to shedding light on misunderstood characters in history, especially British rulers. We cannot let injustice any longer be done to King Wigloff, the much-maligned monarch of central Britain in the early ninth century. The fall of the kingdom of Mercia in 828, under the onslaughts of Egbert, the West Saxon, have been laid to Wigloff's untidy personal habits and his alleged mania for practical joking. The accompanying biographical sketch may serve to disclose some of the more intimate details of the character of the man and to alter in some degree history's unfavorable estimate of him. Our first glimpse of the Wigloff who was one day to become ruler of Mercia, the heart of present-day England, music please, is when at the age of seven he was taken by Oswier, his father's murderer, to see Mrs. Siddons play Lady Macbeth. Every subject of biographical treatment, regardless of the period in which he or she lived, must have been taken at an early age to see Mrs. Siddons play Lady Macbeth. It is part of the code of biography. While sitting in the royal box, the young Prince Wigloff was asked what he thought of the performance. "'Rotten,' he answered, and left the place abruptly, setting fire to the building as he went out. Beobald, inciting the above incident in his Chronicles of Comical Kings, calls it an handy ap ichab hint And perhaps he's right. Events proceeded in rapid succession after this for the young boy, and we next find him facing marriage with a stiff upper lip. 
Mystery has always surrounded the reasons which led to the choice of Princess Offa as Wiglaf's bride. In fact, it has never been quite certain whether or not she was his bride. No one ever saw them together. On several occasions he is reported to have asked his chamberlain who she was as she passed by on the street. And yet the theory persists that she was his wife, owing doubtless to the fact that on the eve of the Battle of Otford he sent a message to her asking where in God's name his clean shirts had been put when they came back from the wash. We come now to that period in Wiglov's life which has been for so many centuries the cause of historical speculation, pro and con. The reference is, of course, to his dealings with Ethelbald, the ambassador from Wessex. Every schoolboy has taken part in the Wiglof-Ethelbald controversy, and how many really know the inside facts of the case? Examination of the correspondence between these two men shows Wiglof to have been simply a great, big-hearted, overgrown boy in the whole affair. All claims of his having had an eye on the throne of Northumbria fade away under the delightful ingenuousness of his attitude as expressed in these letters. I should have thought, he writes in 821 to his sister, that anyone who was not cock-eyed drunk would have known better than to have tried to walk barefoot through that eel-grass from the beach up to the bathhouse without sneakers on, which is what that nin Ethelball tried to do this a.m. We'll say laughter is no name for what you would have done if you had seen him. He looked like he was trying to walk a tightrope. Hey, I yelled at him all the way. Do you think you are trying to walk a tightrope? Well, say, maybe that didn't make him sore. Shortly after this letter was written, Wiglaf ascended the throne of Mercia, his father having disappeared Saturday night without a trace. A peasant, some years after, said that he met the old king walking along a road near what is now the Scottish border, telling people that he was carrying a letter of greeting from the mayor of Pontine to the mayor of Langoscrith. Others say that he fell into the sea off the coast of Wales and became what is now known as King's Rocks. This last has never been authenticated. At any rate, the son, on ascending the throne, became king. His first official act was to order dinner. A nice juicy steak, he is said to have called for. French fries, apple pie, and a cup of coffee. It is probable that he said a cough of cuppy, however, as he was a wag of the first water and loved a joke as well as the next king. We are now thrown into the maelstrom of contradictory historical data, some of which credits Wiglaf with being the greatest ruler Mercia ever had, and some of which indicates that he was nothing but a royal bum. It is not the purpose of this biography to try to settle the dispute. All we know for a fact is that he was a very human man who had faults like the rest of us, and that shortly after became king he disappears from view. His reign began at 4 p.m. one Wednesday, no, Thursday, afternoon, 
and early the next morning Mercia was overrun by the West Saxons. It is probable that King Wiglaf was sold for old silver to help pay expenses. Chapter 23 Facing the Boys' Camp Problem The time seemed to have come to send Junior away to a boys' camp for the summer. He was getting too large to have about the house during the hot weather, and besides, getting him out of town seemed the only way to stop the radio concerts, which had been making a continuous Chautauqua of our home life ever since March. I therefore got out a magazine and turned to that section of advertising headed Summer Camps and Schools. There was a staggering array. Judging from the photographs, the entire child population of the United States spent last summer in bathing suits or on horseback, and the pictures of them were so generic and familiar-looking that there was a great temptation to spend the evening scrutinizing them closely to see if you could pick out anyone you knew. "'Come on, read some out loud,' said Doris in her practical way. "'The Nooga-Wooga camps,' I began. "'The garden spot of the Mikasset Mountains. "'Tumbling water, calls of birds, light-hearted laughter. "'Horseback rides along shady trails, lasting friendships. "'All these are the heritage of happy days at Nooga-Wooga.' I don't think much of the costumes they give the boys to wear at Nooga They look rather sissy to me. That's because you are looking at the camps for girls, dear, said Doris. Those are girls in Peter Thompson's and Bloomer's. Hurriedly turning the page, I came to Camps for Boys. Camp Wico Magisit for Manly Boys on famous Lake Pogo Niblick in the heart of the far-famed Wappahammock district. Campfire stories, military drill, mountain climbing, swimming, wading, hiking, log cabins, sailing. They say nothing about horseshoeing. Don't you suppose they teach horseshoeing? Oh, that probably comes in the second year for the older boys, said Doris. I wouldn't want Junior to plunge right into horseshoeing his first season. We mustn't rush him. Camp Wadnego Gallop on the shores of Crisco Bay, Maine, facing that grandest of all oceans, the Atlantic, located among the best farms where fresh and wholesome food can be had in abundance. Yes, but is it had, my dear? That's the question. Anyway, I don't like the looks of the boat in that picture. It's too full of boys. Hmm. A possum mountain camp for boys. Unusual sports and trips. Ah, possibly condor stalking. That certainly would be unusual, but dangerous. I'd hate to think of Junior crawling about over ledges stalking condors. And it says here that there is a dietitian and a camp mother as well. Camp mother, Doris sniffed. Probably she thinks she knows how to bring up children. Just then Junior came in to announce that he had signed up for a job for the summer, working on the farm of Eddie Westover's uncle. So, in view of this added income, I felt that I could afford a little vacation myself. And I am leaving on July 1st for Camp Mio Nogonet in the foothills of the Rocomocos, 
a paradise for manly men. Chapter 24 All About the Silesian Problem so much controversy has been aroused over Silesia, it is high time that the average man in this country had a clearer idea of the problem. At present, many people think that if you add oxygen to Silesia, you will get oxide of Silesia and can take spots out of clothes with it. A definite statement of the whole Upper Silesian question is therefore due and, for those who care to listen, about to be made. The trouble started at the Treaty of Noblitz in 1773. You have no idea what a perfectly rotten treaty that was. It was negotiated by the Grand Duke Ludwig of Saxe-Gotthard-Cobalt, whose sister married a Morrissey, and settled in Fall River. The aim and ambition of Ludwig's life was to annex Spielzugingen to Nichtrauschen, thereby augmenting his duchy, and at the same time having a dandy time. And he was the kind of man who would stop at nothing when it came time to augment his duchy. In this treaty, then, Ludwig insisted on a clause making Silesia a monogamy. This was very clever, as it brought the centrist party in Silesia into direct conflict with the party who wanted to restore the young Prince Niblick to the throne, thereby causing no end of trouble and nasty feeling. With these obstacles out of the way, the greed and ambition of Ludwig were practically unrestrained. In fact, some historians say that they knew no bounds. Summoning the Storkrath, or Common Council, composed of three classes, the nobles, the welterweights, and the licensed pilots, he said to them, according to Taine, An army can travel ten days on its stomach, but who the hell wants to be an army? This saying has become a byword in history, and is now remembered long after the Grand Duke Ludwig has been forgotten. But at the time, Ludwig received nothing short of an ovation for it, and succeeded in winning over the obstructionist to his side. This made everyone in favor of his disposition of Silesia, except the Silesians. And as they could neither read nor write, they thought that they still belonged to Holland, and cheered a dyke every time they saw one. The question remained in abeyance, therefore, for a century and a quarter, then, in 1805, three years after the accession of Ralph Rittenhouse to the throne of England, the storm broke again. The occasion was the partition of Parchisi by the great powers, by which the towns of Zweibach, Ulmhausen, and Ostwilp were united to form what is known as the Industrial Triangle on the Upper Silesian border. These towns are situated in the heart of the pumice district, and could alone supply France and Germany with pumice for fifty years, provided it didn't rain. Bismarck once called Ostwilp the pumice heart of the world, and he was about right, too. It will therefore be seen how important it was to France that this industrial triangle on the Silesian border should belong to Germany. At the conference which designated the borderline, Gambetta, representing France, 
insisted that the line should follow the course of the Iser River. Iser on one side or the other was the way he is reported to have phrased it which would divide the pumice deposits into three areas, the fourth being the dummy. This would never do. Experts were called in to see if it might not be possible to so divide the district that France might get a quarter, Germany a quarter, and England fifty cents. But it was suggested that the line be drawn down through Globe-Wernick to the mouth of the Iser. As Gambetta said, the line had to be drawn somewhere, and it might as well be there. But Lord Hay Ponsfort, representing England, refused to concede the point, and for a time it looked like an open breach. But matters were smoothed over by holding of a plebiscite in all the towns of Upper Silesia. The result of this plebiscite was taken and exactly reversed by the council, so that the entire Ingandine Valley was given to Sweden, who didn't want it anyway. And there the matter now stands. Chapter 25 Happy the Home Where Books Are Found By way of egging people on to buy Dr. Eliot's five-foot shelf of books, the publishers are resorting to an advertisement in which are depicted two married couples, one reading together by the library table, the other playing some two-handed game of cards, which is evidently boring them considerably. The query is, which one of these couples will be the happier in five years? The implication being that the young people who buy Dr. Eliot's books will, by constant reading aloud to each other from the works of the world's best writers, cement a companionship which will put to shame the illiterate union of the young card players. Granted that most two-handed games of cards are dull enough to result in divorce at the end of five years, they cannot be compared to cooperative family reading as a system of home-wrecking. If this were a betting periodical, we would have ten dollars to place on the chance of the following being the condition of affairs in the literary family at the end of the stated time. The husband is reading his evening newspaper. The wife appears, bringing a volume from the five-foot shelf. Tonight it is Darwin's Origin of the Species. Hurry up and finish that paper. We'll never get along in this Darwin if we don't begin earlier than we did last night. Well, suppose we don't get along in it. That would suit me all right. If you don't want me to read it to you, just say so. If it's so far over your head, just say so. It's not over my head at all. It's just dull. Why don't you read some more out of that Italian novel? Uh, I hate that. I suppose you'd rather have me read The Shake. No, I wouldn't rather have you read The Shake. Go on ahead with your Darwin. I'm listening. It's not my Darwin. I simply want to know a little something, that's all. Of course, you know everything, so you don't have to read anything more. Go on, go on. That last book we read was so far over. Go on, go on. <sighs> Wife reads in an injured tone, 
one and a half pages on the selective processes of pigeons. "'You're asleep. I am not. The last words you read were to this conclusion.' "'Yes. Well, what were the words before that?' "'How should I know? I'm not learning the thing to recite somewhere, am I?' "'Well, it's very funny that you didn't notice when I read the last sentence backwards. "'And if you weren't asleep, what were you doing with your eyes closed?' "'I got smoke in them and, and was resting them for a minute. "'Haven't I got a right to rest my eyes a minute?' "'I suppose it rests your eyes to breathe through your mouth "'and hold your head way over on one side.' "'Yes, it does. And what do you think of that?' "'Go on and read your paper.' "'That's just about your mental speed. "'I'm perfectly willing to read books in this set "'if you'd pick any decent ones. "'Yes, you are. "'What do you mean, yes, you are? "'Just what I said. "'This goes on for ten minutes, "'and then the husband draws a revolver "'and kills his wife.' This concludes Part 5 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Read by Ted DeLorme for LibriVox. This book will continue on future files.